Today, the Hamilton County Grand Jury has indicted Samuel Little for the death of Anna Stewart and also for the murder of a Jane Doe, which we have no idea who she is. The FBI has told us that he's the most prolific serial killer in the history of America. They've been able to, to demonstrate over 50 of these already that he confessed to. He strangled them. That was the way he enjoyed his pleasure, was to strangle these girls. And he specifically looked for girls with a certain neck type that he liked. And that's, that's why he did it. That's how twisted this guy is. You know the old saying, only the good die young. Uh, this piece of garbage is 79 today. Judy Samuel Little is a former boxer, now 79 the years FBI old. The FBI has confirmed that Samuel Little is the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history. Detectives in Willoughby Hills who believe Samuel Little could hold the key to a decades-old cold right. case The there. FBI is calling Little the worst U.S. serial killer ever. See, it's a strange thing about the women. See, see a lot of them... A lot of these women, they have a death condition. They want to die? Yeah. If they was alive to this day, they'd be my friends. Oh, God. That is so crazy. It's the life of a serial killer. In the early afternoon on September 11th, 1976, a 22-year-old woman, naked and badly beaten, began frantically knocking on the back door of a home on a quiet, suburban street. The owner called 911, and when patrol units arrived, the woman told the police that a man had grabbed her as she walked home from breakfast, wrapped a black cord around her neck, and dragged her into a black Chevy Impala. She told the police how he beat her unconscious and, when she came to, sexually assaulted her. When the man fell asleep, she ran for her life. It didn't take long for the police to track down the black Chevy Impala. Within just minutes, police found the car still parked on the secluded gravel road where the woman said the attack occurred. Cautiously, police approached the vehicle where they found a man sleeping in the back seat of the car, snoring. The man denied raping the woman and told the officers he'd paid $20 for drugs and sex. In the Impala, however, police found the woman's clothes and a black electrical cord. Samuel Little was arrested and charged with rape and sodomy. Prosecutors and police were convinced that he would spend years behind bars. But they were wrong. It would be a pattern of catch and release that would repeat itself again and again, with deathly consequences. This is the story of Samuel Little, America's most prolific serial killer. I'm your host, and this is Episode 1. For more information surrounding this case and other unforgivable crimes, visit theunforgivables.com, where you can find articles, videos, and more. For more than 30 years, serial killer Samuel Little went undetected as he terrorized women across the country, claiming upwards of 93 victims. Although he wasn't convicted of murder until 2014, he was no stranger to law enforcement. In a crime spree that began in the 1950s, he was arrested more than 100 times on charges including kidnapping, rape, robbery, and assault. Yet, despite these charges, Samuel Little spent fewer than 10 years in prison. 
For three and a half decades, he would continue to murder without fear of retribution by deliberately targeting those on the margins of society, drug users, sex workers, and runaways whose deaths largely went unnoticed. And so, a pattern began to emerge. Samuel Little was born on June 6, 1940, in Reynolds, Georgia, a small town which at the time had a population of just over 800. I remember going to school, but I noticed that when I was in school four or five years old, the teachers met. She's turned me on, make the dick hard. I, I know she used to do it like this. Oh, she rubber and she'd be teaching me, yeah. What attract that shit to me? According to Little, his mother, Bessie Mae Little, was a prostitute who had abandoned him as an infant. The man Little claimed to be his father, 19-year-old Paul McDowell, also lived in Reynolds. By his teens, Little's grandparents moved to Northeast Ohio, and Little soon moved in with them, and he would take their last name as his own. Little attended Hawthorne Junior High School, but it didn't take long before he would have run-ins with the law. According to records, Little was sent to the Boys Industrial School, a reformatory for teenage boys in Lancaster, in February 1954. He was just 13 years old. His booking card listed him under the name McDowell and said he was there for stealing a bike. His IQ was listed as 96, and his mother's whereabouts were listed as unknown. In reformatory school, the boys spent half their days in school and the other half doing manual labor, living in small cabins which were segregated by race and monitored by the older boys. While there, Little was assigned to farm duty, where the troublemakers were often sent. The farm crew were responsible for raising animals such as chickens and cows and growing the vegetables. By the time Little was released to his grandparents in September 1955, he had racked up 47 disciplinary reports. Most boys only had one or two. In 1956, Little was arrested again for burglary in Omaha, Nebraska and served time at a youth detention center. Then, in 1957, prison records in Columbus show he broke into a dry cleaner's in Lorraine and was sent to the Ohio State Reformatory in Mansfield. He was paroled for Mansfield after only a few years, but then sent back in October 1961 for breaking into an abandoned furniture warehouse. It would be during his time spent at Mansfield that Little would learn to box, using his imposing frame and massive hands to pummel the other inmates. He was paroled again in December 1964, and by this time Little had already racked up an extensive criminal record. He was only 24 years old. It would be a pattern of catch and release that would repeat itself again and again as he bounced across the country. And, by the late 1960s, Little had left Cleveland for Florida. And it was in Miami, in the early morning hours of New Year's Day 1971, that Little would succumb to his dark fantasies and commit his first murder. How did you wait until you were 30 to do it? Oh, just imagine it. Would imagine it would have been. Yeah, I didn't think it was, yeah. God was going to make it to reality. Yeah. I didn't go crazy on it. <laughs> Until uh, all of a sudden, yeah, I went more, yeah, and so I just I asked the good Lord. I said, "Boy, man, 
put my hand around her neck, and that was it. She evidently wanted wanted this to happen, you know. So how long after the first one before you did the second one? About a month, too. So you're going pretty quick. Yeah, man. How did you kill her? What happened? Same same procedure. I kissed her and everything. I kissed her and I see. What you do if I strangle you? How much I could do? Bless her heart. Samuel Little met Mary Brosley at a bar in North Miami Beach, and the two enjoyed drinking away the final hours of 1970. Mary was a vulnerable, frail woman, about five foot four and anorexic, barely weighing 80 pounds, and she walked with a limp from a previous hip surgery. Six months before she met Little, she had been reported as missing by her family in Massachusetts. Mary would tell Little that night that she had left her life behind, along with two children in Massachusetts, after endless confrontations about her alcoholism. Little knew she was the kind of woman who could disappear from the face of the earth and nobody would ever know. As they sat in the front seat of Little's car in a secluded area off Route 27, the night was calm as Little admired the way the moonlight bounced off her throat. And so, by New Year's Day in 1971, Mary Brosley would become Samuel Little's first victim, but not his last. And it would be another 47 years before her terrible fate would finally be revealed. A few months after murdering Mary Brosley, Samuel Little returned to Cleveland, and on May 28th, he was arrested for the robbery of a gas station in Westlake. And that following December, while in prison, he was charged with sodomy and aggravated assault. By December, the robbery case had made headlines when the state's key witness, Little's girlfriend, Lucy Madero, who was present at the robbery, was forgotten about in the county's crumbling jail for almost six months without having ever been charged. The jail was so run down that inmates could talk through holes in the walls and ceilings. As Little would tell detectives later, Madero told a cellmate named Aurelia Jean Dorsey that she would be testifying against Little. And before the trial, Dorsey met Little and warned him about his girlfriend's plans to testify. And Madeira would testify against Little when the case came to trial in March 1972. But Little was prepared. Dorsey, Little said, even testified on his behalf. And records show a jury found him not guilty. Little would later recall that Dorsey was no beauty and 30 years his senior. But her act of loyalty made an impression on Little. And the two became close until her death from a brain hemorrhage in 1988. Dorsey taught Little how to find and sell stolen goods, a skill that supported their life of wandering. She was his traveling companion and a shoplifting expert. As they crossed from state to state, the two settled into a routine. Day after day, night after night, in a seedy motel or cheap flophouse somewhere, Little would put Dorsey to bed. Then he would go out into the night, again and again. Heard about six other girls were sitting on the porch under some crack in there. I stopped to go in there. I seen the girls, that's why I stopped. We stayed together two days or more. I think it was about three days. We was going shoplifting. We went to Sears. We went to uh, Clover's, and that's where I got busted. They took me to jail, and she went and stayed in the car. 
and the manager of Kroger's, I guess he got tired of her laying on his property in that car. He called the station where I was at in North North Arkansas to drop the charges so he can come down and get this gal and car out of him. They cut me loose. So we was headed toward with that place where Walmart's uh, original store bent. I whipped off the road and back into that little woods. It was a cornfield back there. I pulled through it, and on the other side of the cornfield was a trash pile. I parked the car facing out where I could see anybody coming in. So I, I pulled her out of the car. She's too big for me to carry, carry her. So I just pulled out of the car and laid on that trash that was left there. And so, for decades, Samuel Little would continue to terrorize women across the country leaving a trail of death in his path and preying upon women he knew would not make front-page news. But it would be a body found in July of 1987 that would put into motion the series of events that would eventually lead to Little's undoing. On July 13, 1987, officers from the Los Angeles Police Department responded to a call about a dead body lying in an alleyway behind a residence on East 27th Street in Los Angeles. Upon arriving at the location, the officers found the body of a woman laying naked from the waist down. She was wearing only one sock and no shoes, and none of her missing clothing was found in or around the alley. One of the responding officers noticed drag marks in the dirt near the woman's feet, and it appeared that the woman had been killed elsewhere in her body then dumped in the alley. The autopsy revealed the cause of death was the result of manual strangulation. The woman suffered multiple bruises near her jawline, hemorrhages in and around her eyes, and scratches and abrasions to her neck, some of which were caused by fingernails. Carol Aline Elford would become another victim of Samuel Little, and detectives were, as usual, puzzled and left without answers as to who could have done this. And so, detectives collected the evidence, filed away their notes, and as the years passed the case went cold, and the evidence collected from the crime scene sat undisturbed, just a terrible memory from a not-so-distant past. That is, until 2014, when the pieces would fall into place, and Samuel Little's terrible secret would finally be revealed. In 2007, Samuel Little was arrested in Los Angeles for possession of cocaine and pleaded guilty to the charges. However, after failing to attend a court-ordered drug rehabilitation program, a bench warrant was issued for his arrest. It would be at a Christian shelter in Kentucky on September 5, 2012, the Los Angeles detectives would eventually track down Samuel Little, and he was arrested for the drug-related charge and extradited to California. In California, authorities took a sample of Little's DNA and carried out testing, and it didn't take long for his DNA to link him to three unsolved killings from 1987 and 1989 in Los Angeles County, one of which being Carol Eileen Alford. Samuel Little's life of wandering and murder had come to an end. The Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office charged Samuel Little with three counts of murder and special circumstances for multiple murder. Following a brief trial, a jury found Little guilty on three counts of first-degree murder in the deaths of Alfred, Nelson, and Apodaca. He was sentenced to three consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole. As Little was wheeled out of the courtroom in his wheelchair, he screamed, 
I didn't do it, extending a fist into the air as he was ushered through the doors and out of the courtroom. Samuel Little insisted he was innocent. And so, it seemed that's where the story ended, until 2018, when a cool and confident Texas Ranger would visit the state prison and have a conversation of his own with Samuel Little, who would smile as he closed his eyes, remembering his victims, one by one, their hair color, their clothes, their neck, and how he killed them. And in time, with vivid detail and unsettling accuracy, Samuel Little would put faces to the memories he held within his mind. James B. Holland with the Texas Rangers interviewing Samuel Little, the Palmdale Prison Unit, California Bureau of Corrections, Thursday, May 17th, 2018 at 10.21 a.m. Hey, tell me about um, Northern Kentucky, the girl that you met in Columbus. Thanks for listening to The Unforgivables. For more information, visit theunforgivables.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave a review or a five-star rating. It really does help. Tell me my trunkle. She walked over to me. Say, come on, y'all can't take me to Miami. Describe this girl to me. Is she white, black, what she looked like? She was white, blonde hair, dishwater blonde and gold. Short. Short, like shoulder length? Yeah, or? No, no, no. A little over his ear. Like a bob? Yeah, like a bob. Okay. And um, how tall do you think she was? She was about five, seven. How much do you think she weighs? She weighed about 130. How old do you think she was? Oh, she was about 25. Okay. You mentioned before that, that uh, you said she kind of had like this hippie aura to her. Yeah, she did give you a hippie feeling. I think she was some kind of hippie, yeah. So you go to Cincinnati, you mess around on Vine Street, and then eventually you guys both get in your car and you cross over the, the bridge into Kentucky. Tell me about going into Kentucky. We got to Covington and then we continued through Covington. Mm-hmm. And there was a park that they were having a festival there. And she heard the music and shit off that band in there. And by her being a hippie type, and she, oh, she wanted to get to that. But the police came over and peeked in, in our car. He really wanted me to move out of there. So we, instead of going in there, I took her the other way. Right. Around, winding around, they got hills out in Kentucky, and the road winds around the hills. Mm-hmm. I seen a little short road going up mm-hmm. the hill. Mm-hmm. And, and up top there was uh, vegetation, wasn't no houses or nothing. And so I pulled up in there and, and concealed about the car in, in that little vegetation up there on top of the hill. Mm-hmm. So tell me about this, this road that goes up the hill. What kind of road is it? It was, it was like a dirt road. Okay. It was like dirt. The grass was growing in the middle between two tracks. When I left her up in the, in that little road up there, on the side of that little road, she was like partially concealed by the vegetation. I left her there.